I don't know why, but I just wanted to be like him. I just wanted to wear green tights like him. I just wanted to fly like him. I just had an obsession with Peter Pan. And I remember one time watching this cartoon and uh, Peter Pan said, if you believe with all your heart, you can fly. And so as a little four-year-old kid, I believed with all my heart that I could fly. So much so that next day I went to preschool, I climbed up this treehouse, got to the top of this ledge and just said to myself, if you believe with all your heart, you can fly. And so I jumped out of this treehouse. And believe it or not, I started to fly. Not upwards, but downwards. Right into the ground. I broke both my bones in my left arm, dislocated my wrists. Next moment, I remember being in hospital with my mum there. I'm like, what happened? Um, And she's like, I don't think you can fly, sweetie. So when I was at a young age, what I learned is that faith can let you down that faith can let you down. Maybe if you've experienced this with Santa Claus, the tooth tooth fairy or the Easter bunny, you know that point in time when you discover that they're all just nicknames for your mum? If you don't know that, then now you're realising that at this point in time, and you realise that, man, faith can let you down. It's so disappointing. I'll never forget when I discovered that Santa was my parents. I just felt so depressed. Faith can let you down. And as a result of that, as I grew up and I saw I couldn't fly and all these Easter bunnies things weren't real, I became a bit sceptical towards things that you have faith in. I wonder if you're the same. But what I realized, though, as I got older is that faith is unavoidable. Like in almost everything I do or everything I think is based on the premise of faith. Now, maybe wondering, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. This is a bit... Uh, weird. But anyway, like when I went to bed at night, I had to have faith that my parents were not serial killers. Like I legit had to have faith because if I didn't, I would have gone crazy and I would not have slept any night of the week. I think we all have examples like this where we have faith in things because if not, we would go crazy. Now, let me give you an example of this. Um, Majority of us here, I'm assuming, think that the earth is round, that, that, that it's a globe. But the reality is, is like, who here has been to space? Like, has, has anyone here been to space, seen that Earth globe? Like, what, what evidence do we have that the Earth is actually not flat? Now, maybe you're thinking, Joel, but like, you know, there's like videos and there's like photos and there's like Google Earth. Like, sh- like surely that's legit. But like, how do we not know that Google and NASA are just not messing with us? Like, how do we not know? Like, like we, we, we put faith in the evidence that is, I guess, presented to us, but we don't know. I was listening to the radio. I can't remember what radio station it was. It was anyway, it was an average one. But there's these talk hosts, and they were asking for people to call up about conspiracies so, you know, they can have a laugh at them, basically. And this one guy called in, and he said, yeah, legit, it's conspiracy. The earth is flat. It's not, it's not round. It's not a globe, mate. It's not a globe. And they asked him, well, like, what evidence or what reasoning do you have for this conspiracy? And he's like, well, if you just look outside, look at the horizon, it's flat. And then they're like, okay, but why, like, why would anyone come up with this theory? And he's like, I know why. And he said the American government came up with this theory so they can sell globes to primary schools and, and lots of money. <laughs> like, I know you're like, Joel, this is ridiculous. And it is. It's a ridiculous example. But I think you can get my point that in life, faith is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. Google defines faith as uh, complete trust or confidence in someone or something. 
The reality is, is each of us every day has faith in institutions, ideas, people, even the seat that you're sitting on right now. We put our trust in different things. Maybe if you're not a believer, maybe if you're an atheist, you might not want to think that you're a person of faith, that you're, you're a person of reason. But can I say to you, as much love as possible, that if you believe there is no God, that's still a belief. That's still an act of faith, that you believe there is no God. And if you're like, no, Joel, that's based on reason. Well, can I, can I lovingly point out to you that you don't know everything? I don't know everything. The reason why none of us knows everything means that we live in this life of faith. I remember reading this book and it gave this example and it said, if you had a piece of paper and if you were to draw a circle on that piece of paper, and let's say that's just like all knowledge in like the universe and existence. And then if you and I had to draw on that, in, within that circle how much we know, all of us here would get a pen and just put a dot on that circle of paper. And then if you fill in all the, the rest of that circle, I know this is crazy, but you fill in that imaginary piece of paper, there's so much we don't know. See, the reality is if you believe in a God or you don't believe in a God, that is still an act of faith. Faith. This is a, it's a key topic to life, but it's also a key theme in the Bible. It's a key root to the Bible story of redemption. And so tonight, we're going to learn about faith as it's presented to us in Genesis 4. Now, why Genesis 4? Because in Genesis 4, we get introduced to the first man of faith. We get introduced to Abel. And in Hebrews 11, that famous passage about faith, he's the first man that is referenced in the Old Testament. And so tonight, we're going to look at this theme of faith, and we're going to learn three things from Genesis chapter 4. We're going to firstly learn about the nature of faith. Secondly, we're going to learn about the enemy of faith. And thirdly, we're going to learn about the reason for faith. So let me repeat that. We're going to learn about the nature of faith, the enemy of faith, and the reason for faith. So... Let's crack into it and let's have a look at the nature of faith. And so if you have your Bibles, look at Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, what we see here in verses 1 and 2 basically is the creation of Adam, I mean, not Adam, sorry, the creation of Cain and Abel. That's what we see here. And basically what you see is that Cain's creation is climactic, it's important, and Abel's, well, he's the second born, he's the second brother, not that important. As a second-born child, I can relate to poor Abel. Now, why is it important we see this? Well, I think we can skip over this part of Scripture and think, yeah, a baby's born. But think about this. This is the first son in the Bible. This is the first baby that is born through another human. Like, like, think about poor Adam and Eve. Like, they didn't have any pregnancy classes. You know, they didn't have any, I don't know, videos or YouTube to give them directions or like what's going to happen. They had no idea. Like poor Eve, you know, for nine months, her body would have just blown up and then she would have gone through this painful labor. Like fair enough that she pretty much yells out in verse uh, one, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Fair enough. What an achievement. What we see here in verses one and two is the creation of Cain and Abel. But then if you have a look at verses 3 to 5, what we see here is how Cain and Abel worship. You see what happens in verse 3 and 5 is we're told that Abel is um, a hunter or he's a shepherd. He, sorry, he's more a shepherd, sorry. He looks after a flock, animals, while Cain is a farmer. And what happens is that both go to worship God, to give offerings to God. 
And what we get told is that God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's offering. And I don't know about you, but the first question I have is why? Like, like poor Cain, like what's going on here? Like, why did God look at Abel's offering with favor and not Cain's? Well, if you read down and you have a look at verse 6, the Lord comes to Cain and he gives us a bit of a hint as to what's going on here. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you did what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, I think this is a hint here that in Cain's offering, he did something wrong. Now, what did Cain do wrong? That's a good question. Well, I think there's two things that Cain did wrong. The first thing that Cain did wrong is that he gave a rubbish offering. He gave a rubbish offering. Now, where do I get that? Where do, I, why do, I, where do we think that? Well, if you have a look at verses 3 to 4, what we get told here is that, firstly, in verse 4, Abel brought an offering of the fat portions. Like, that's the best part of the animal, right? He brings that from some of the firstborn of his flock, from the firstborn. Whereas if you have a look at Cain, he brings an offering from some of the fruits of the soil, now, don't get me wrong, God's not there going, oh, meat, I love meat, I'm not a vegetarian, don't, I don't like the grains. No, no, both the, the grains and the meat are a good offering to give before God. But you can, what's going on here is the author is trying to point out to us how there's a difference in quality, how Abel's is the firstborn, while Cain's is just some of the fruits. Now, wh- why is this important? Well, let me explain this to you. Um, If you wanted to be stingy when you're giving offerings to God, then what would happen is you would wait until the end of your season or the end of your flock is born to determine how much you'll give to God. So let's say you've got some lambs, right? And some lambs are being born. If you want to be stingy, you wait to see how many lambs are going to be born in that period. So let's say there's 12 lambs that are born. And then you can go, okay, I'm going to give God one or two lambs. So that way I'm tithing, which just means I'm giving 10% of what I've what I earn, to God, or I'm giving more than tithing, like I'm doing really well. But here's the risk. If you give your firstborn as an offering to God, you don't know how many more are going to be born. Maybe there's only going to be two lambs that season. And then all of a sudden, that firstborn offering is actually 50% of your income. Now, so if you're stingy, you'll start to calculate that, and you'll start to think, oh, that's just, that's just too much. So I'll wait until the end of the season to see all my crops or, or to see whatever um, animals has been born and then I'll give my offering to God. You see, that's, this is what's going on here. Cain is a bit calculating while Abel is trusting in God and gives him the firstborn that comes from his flock. You see, what, what did Cain do wrong? The th- first thing is he gave a rubbish offering in comparison to his brother. But there's a second thing going on here and that is that Cain gave a rubbish offering with a rubbish heart. And that's actually what matters the most. You see, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, it explains this to us. It explains to us in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a great chapter in the Bible. It talks about what faith is, for example, and in Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But what we also see in verse 4 is we get told this in regards to Cain and Abel. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. 
And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. In a passage in John, it talks about that Cain's actions were wicked and his brothers were righteous. You see, you can even see, though, for example, in Genesis, how Cain responds when God uh, actually approves of his brother's offering. He gets angry and depressed because he comes from a rubbish heart. So what was Cain's problem? He gave a rubbish offering and it came from a rubbish heart. Let me try and give you an example and contextualize this for you. Um, I want you to imagine that it's your birthday, okay? Maybe it is someone's birthday. I apologize if that is. But imagine it is your birthday. And I want to imagine that Cain and Abel, like they're your two friends. I want you to imagine Abel basically at midnight the night before or like, you know, zero, zero point, point one. He puts up this photo collage of you, you guys together, like eating ice cream, like going to the beach. He writes this essay about how much he loves you and how, how close you are, how much he appreciates you. And then Cain, like two days later after your birthday, just puts just like HBD. Like, can't even be bothered saying happy birthday. Like, just really no effort. Like, I want you to imagine, like, it's your birthday and, like, Abel comes to you and he's like, man, here's the newest iPhone. Like, I love you so much. Like, I just want to show that to you. And then, like, Cain comes to you with, like, half-eaten lettuce. Like, the worst vegetable ever. It's basically water. Like, it comes with a rubbish offering and a rubbish heart. So that's what Cain did wrong. But what did Abel do right? Well, like I just read to you from Hebrews 11, we get told that he came before God and by faith Abel brought a better offering. You see, I think we can skip this, that Abel is the first person of faith in the Scriptures. He's the first one we get told that had faith in God. And so... Basically, in Genesis 4, we're being introduced not only to Cain and to Abel, but a bit of theme here as well is we're going to introduce to the topic of faith. But what does it teach us about faith? What does it teach us about the nature of faith, to put it in those words? Well, there's some subtle differences between Cain and Abel, and they're worthwhile pointing out. You see, both Cain and Abel had some sort of faith. But the reality is, is that Cain had a religious faith, Whereas Abel had a real faith. Now, what do I mean by a religious faith? Well, let's have a look at Cain. So, Cain had a religious faith. You see, in the scriptures, there's basically one of two offerings. There's about, about two different types of offerings. There's many different types of offerings, but you can try and categorize it into one or two categories. Basically, you have a given offering to God because you are thankful for your salvation, or you give an offering to God because you want to earn your salvation. Or to put it another way, when it comes to Cain and Abel, Abel gave an offering because he's thankful for God's blessings, while Cain gave an offering because he wanted to gain God's blessings. And, and, And this explains why Cain is so upset when he doesn't get the approval from God, because that's what he wanted. He wasn't giving this offering to worship God and to be thankful for God. He was doing this to get something out of God. You see, Cain had a religious faith. He had faith in his actions getting, being the thing that would give him blessings from God. He wasn't, didn't have faith in God giving him the blessings themselves. If in Cain we see a religious faith, in Abel we see a real faith. We see a faith whose heart is just captivated by how good and glorious God is. 
He understood the grace of God. He, he was thankful for God's grace. And he knew the purpose of his offering. You know, like Cain wasn't thinking, you know what, I wonder if God is just really hungry. Like, I wonder if God just wants me to cook this 10 out of 10 master chef, you know, roast lamb. Like, maybe that's, you know, was, was Abel thinking that? Well, no. Like, he, he knew God wasn't hungry. He knew that God didn't need these offerings. But God desired them because they reflected your heart. They reflected worship. What we see in Abel is a real faith. There's a, um, a theologian, a famous one from, I think, the 16th century. His name's John Calvin, a really important theologian. And he talked about faith, and he said this, which I think is really uh, fits in and uh, helpful. He said, in regards to Christian faith, he said, saving faith is not an empty speculation that merely flirts about the top of the brain, but something that takes root in the depths of the heart. I think you can see that in Abel as he gives the, his firstborn, as he does so, so generously to God. He's not calculating like Cain. So, we see his trust and confidence in God. In Genesis 4, we learn about the nature of faith. And we see how it's just confidence in God and trusting in Him. It's a real faith, not a religious one, one that captivates your heart. But before we look at the second point, which is the enemy of faith, I think there's a warning from this passage that we, we need to pay attention to. What is that warning? That warning is this. We can all be religious like Cain. We can all be religious like Cain. We can all have a religious faith instead of a real faith, which our heart is captivated by it. We can, we can come to church, we can read our Bible, we can pray prayers, we can speak Christian jargon, we can buy books from Kurong or, or read John Calvin and have a religious faith. Our hearts are so good at pretending to be faithful and to be Christians that sometimes we even deceive ourselves. This is why when you look throughout the Scriptures, in particular the New Testament, you see guys like Paul saying, watch your life and your doctrine closely. This is why Jesus comes to the Pharisees who are the religious guys of the time and he calls them hypocrites. You see it over and over again. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Are you deceiving yourselves or do you have a genuine faith where you trust in God and not your actions to gain God's blessings or salvation? Warning number one, we can, we can all be religious like Cain. So, we learn about the nature of faith. Let's look at the enemy of faith. Point number two, the enemy of faith, which is the enemy of sin. The enemy of sin. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. Basically, what occurs here is that Cain and Abel give their offering. God doesn't approve of Cain's offering. And so Cain's upset. And so God comes to Cain. And then in verses 6 and 7, he asks him a series of rhetorical questions. Let me just read to us 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What we get introduced to here is the enemy of faith. We get introduced here to sin. This is the first time that sin is mentioned in the Bible. And you know what's really interesting is that here in Genesis 4, it doesn't like explain what sin is. It doesn't give us, you know, a, a dictionary def definition. 
but instead it illustrates for us, it personifies what sin is. Like what, what we see here is that sin is, it's like a lion, it's like a, a tiger, it's like a predator that's crouching at your door. It's ready to jump at you and to kill you. Last week, we learned about the power of sin, I suppose, and we learned about the essence of sin, as Mark explained to us, which one way to describe the essence of sin is unbelief. And in many ways, sin is an action where you either choose, I guess, not to do what you should do, or it's when you choose to do something that you shouldn't do. Sin is definitely an action, as explained to us in the Scriptures. But at the same time, we're also told in the Scriptures that sin is a bit more than an action, that it's also, it's a nature within us, that it's like a force or a power, sort of. You see, when you, when you look at the Scriptures, you see in Hebrews 12, it talks about, throw off every sin that entangles you. Jesus talks about how, like, you're enslaved to sin and it's your master. In the Scriptures, it's, it's sort of described like more than just an action, but a, but a presence within us and around us. One of my favorite movies uh, is The Matrix. Um, uh, if you haven't seen it, um, this is going to be really difficult for me to explain it to you, but I'll give my, <laughs> do my best. In, in The Matrix, basically, it's this movie where it, it tries to explain to us that the world in which we live in is actually not real, that it's a deception that's been created by computers who uh, actually have created this deception so that they can use the energy that it comes from human beings to power computers. And anyway... In this movie, what it basically is trying to explain to us is that the reality in which you experience is not reality. Um, the, the actual reality is not here right now at church, but instead you're in this like egg-like shell with fluid around you and you're plugged into the matrix. And it's giving um, impulses, electric pulses, sorry, into your brain so you feel like you're experiencing the sensations of life. But it's a deception, it's not real, it's not true. In this movie, uh, one of the characters, when talking about The Matrix, said this. It should be on the screen. He says, The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. That you are a slave, born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. In many ways... Um, metaphorically, sin is like a matrix for us. And that so many of us deny its presence, so many of us don't realize that it's like a hidden lion that is ready to devour us, that it is in our life. As the Bible explains to us, or, or David explains in the Psalms, surely since I was born, I was sinful at my birth. That there's, a, there's this teaching throughout the Scriptures that sin is not just an action, but it's a part of our nature because of the fall. With that in mind, what this means is basically was God comes to Cain and he says to them, hey, sin is, sin is crouching by you. As God warns Cain, he's basically saying, which pill are you going to take, if you know the movie? Are you going to take the red pill? Are you going to understand the truth? Or are you going to take the blue pill and you're going to resist the truth? For Cain, it's the same. Are you going to understand that sin is there and resist it? Or are you going to ignore it? And then we look at verse 8 and, and what happens. What we see is that Cain grabs his brother, his younger brother Abel, takes him out to a field. His younger brother Abel, who probably loves his older brother, probably has been playing with him for years, trusts his older brother. 
And so when Cain says, hey, Abel, let's, let's go out to this field. Let's go beyond our parents' sight. Abel trusts his brother. He goes with him. And then there in verse 8, we get told, Cain attacks him and Cain kills him. Cain betrays him. Once again, I think we can skip over this. This is the first murder in history. First piece of violence that we come across, and it's so brutal. It's not even between two enemies, it's between two brothers. As an older brother abuses his trust and his power over his younger brother. As a father to two sons, Elijah who's four and Isaac who's 18 months, there's something within me as a father to protect my youngest. So whenever they're doing lightsaber battles or wrestling, I'm always trying to make sure that Isaac is protected. There's just something inside of me that does that. Even more so, as we see here, we can see why this is so wrong, that Cain should be protecting his brother and instead he kills him. And then what happens? Well, in verses 19 to 14, God shows up. He comes to Cain, he says, where is Abel? And then Cain responds, he says, I don't know, just lies to God. And then he he says, am I my brother's keeper? You know, those famous few words that we know. You know, what's interesting in the study I found this week is that the word for keeper is the same word for shepherd in the Hebrew. So it's almost like Abel is, I mean, Cain is saying, am I the shepherd's shepherd? Do I need to look after him? You know, God comes to him, he knows you're not your brother's keeper, you're your brother's killer. And with that in mind, God then says to him, after he doesn't repent and say what he did, in verses 10 to 14, he says this, God says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And then Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. You know, what's, what, we, what we see here, what I find is really interesting is, it's almost like you see how sin is Cain's enemy of faith. What we see here is that sin is what leads to his division with his brother, obviously, and what leads to his division with God as he gets kicked out of the garden. It leads to his, his division with the ground. You see, what we see here is that Cain starts by sinning, but then sin does him. Cain starts by sinning, but then sin does him. In um, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he makes this observation about faith and he makes this observation about faith when uh, looking at World War II and talking about uh, the Nazis as they killed the Jews. And he said that the Nazis um, killed the Jews because they hated them to begin with. But then they hated the Jews because they had killed them. Now, what does that mean? That's a bit cryptic. Well, what C.S. Lewis is trying to say here, here's the point, is that you start doing sin, but then sin starts doing you. Like its presence, its consequences doesn't leave you. I think a lot of us, like we've felt this, we've done something, we've listened to sin, we've done sin, and then we've felt the consequences of it. And we see this in Cain, and it's his enemy, and it's our enemy as well. See, in Genesis 4, we learn about the nature of faith, and we learn about the enemy 
of faith, which is sin. But before we move on to the third point, which is um, the reason for faith, there's another warning here, number, warning number two, that I think we need to pay attention to. And that warning is this. We can all sin like Cain. We can all sin like Cain. I don't know about you, but as I was reading this story, for the, as I was studying for this sermon, like, I, I could relate to Abel. I'm like, man, poor Abel. I feel like I'm like Abel. I couldn't relate to Cain. I'm like, Cain's an idiot. Like, what's he thinking? It's his own brother. And yet, you know what? The more I read this, the more you realize that actually Abel is like you and me on our very best day. Like on the absolute best day. But most days, you and I are like Cain. And on our worst days, very worst days, we'd be like Cain here. Maybe we haven't murdered someone, but Jesus talks about, for example, how if you hate your brother, that is worthy of judgment as well. The reality is, is this story is not put here so that we may look at Cain, laugh at him and go, what, what, what an idiot. This story is put here to be a warning, to be a reminder to us that we're like him, that we can do what he does, that we can sin like him. But the reality is, is that sin is crouching at our door as well. Will we learn from Cain or will we repeat the same mistakes? And so out of love, can I ask us just two simple questions in regards to this? Where is sin crouching in our life? In what areas of our life are we allowing sin to dwell in? In our life, what areas are we minimizing the, the impact of sin and its dangers? Because warning number two, we can sin like Cain. We can sin like Cain. So, now we've looked at the nature of faith, looked at the enemy of faith. We're now going to shift focus. We're going to talk about the reason for faith. And when I say we're going to shift focus, we're going to stop looking at Cain and Abel so much. And instead, we're going to look at the God of Cain and Abel. You see, in Genesis 4, it teaches us about God. It teaches us a few things, but there's two things that I want us to point out about God. And that is, firstly, His justice. And secondly, His grace. But firstly, his justice. In verse 10, God said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, what does this mean? It's a bit confusing. Well, basically, throughout Scripture, what you see is that injustice cries out to God. And that God is a God who listens to this cry. That God is a God of justice. For example, in Genesis 18, verse 20, it says this, it says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. So what happens is God judges Sodom and Gomorrah later on. As we see in this chapter, Cain re- rejects God's advice, he sins, and then God curses him and curses the ground. That God is a God of justice, that there's consequences to our actions. But at the same time, God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. Like, I find this incredible when you look at this passage. Like, when you learn about how in verse 5, I think it is, how Cain is very angry that his face was downcast. Like, I don't know what that means. I think it just means he's depressed. Like, it's like God comes to a depressed man and he counsels him. He cares for him. And like a good counselor, what does he do? He asks questions. He's trying to give him advice and help him to reject sin and to help Cain understand his heart. And then what happens is Cain rejects God's advice. Cain goes out and he murders his own brother. And then what does God do? 
does he come and say, how dare you not listen to me? How dare you kill your own brother? But instead, God comes to him again and asks him a question. Where is Abel? Now, maybe you're thinking, why, why is God doing this? Like he did this in the garden with Adam and Eve. Why is he asking questions? Well, quite simply, I can guarantee you this. God is not asking questions because he's after information. Like he knows where Abel is. He's coming here to ask questions because he wants Cain to repent. He's coming in a gracious way, because not because he wants to understand Cain's heart, because he, but he wants Cain to understand his own heart. You see, God is so gracious in this story. And even after when Cain complains and says, this punishment is too much that I can bear. Like someone's going to kill me like I killed my brother. I can't take this. What does God do? He, he shows grace again and he gives him a mark to protect him. We see God is gracious in this story. But at the same time, it makes you wonder, like, how can God do this? Like, how can God be a God of justice as well as a God of grace? Like, why doesn't Cain die after he just killed his brother? Why does he deserve that mark? How can God be both gracious and just? It doesn't seem to make sense. Those two characteristics don't seem to fit in our mindset. Well, later on in the scriptures, we come across another Abel. In the book of Hebrews, once again, in chapter 12, verse 23 to 24, it says this. It says, You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what's this passage saying? It's saying a few things, but let me just try and be clear here. What it's trying to say to us is that Jesus is the ultimate Abel. That Jesus is the ultimate innocent one. That he is the ultimate shepherd. That he offered the perfect offering. You see, in many ways, Jesus is like Abel. He came to a world full of Cain's that hated him. He came to a world where people were jealous of him because he loved his father. He came into a world full of Cain's who were just religious and just offered religious offerings to God. He came into a world that murdered him. See, in many ways, Jesus is like Abel. But he's also unlike Abel, in particular in one way. You see, for Jesus, not only was he the victim of injustice, but he paid and died for all injustice. You see, Jesus' blood cries out better than Abel's blood. Because Jesus is the ultimate Abel. Because Jesus' blood is what makes it possible for God to be perfectly gracious, but also perfectly just. You see, it's Jesus' blood that makes it possible for God to be a God of justice for Abel's sake. Because Cain's sin is taken at the cross. And at the same time, Jesus' blood is what makes it possible for God to show grace to men like Cain. And to people like you and me. You see, when you come to understand the character of God, how He's both gracious but also just... Uh, he's a God that loves us, yes, but he's also a God that we can cry out to for when, we, when there is injustice. Then you come to understand the reason for faith. Because that's who God is. When you come to understand who God is, you understand the logic of faith. But warning number three from this passage, which is important and relate to, related to faith, and that's this. We can all be unrepentant like Cain. We can all be unrepentant like Cain. I don't know if you notice in this passage, but God's given Cain numerous opportunities for Cain to tell him what's going on, to come before God in repentance. 
And what do we see here is we see that Cain never repents. He's sorry for what he does, but not because he's sorry for hurting his brother or for hurting his God, but because he's sorry for the consequences. He regrets the consequences of his actions in terms of how it's too much for him to bear. The reality is all of us can be unrepentant like Cain. The Holy, we can grieve the Holy Spirit as we seek towards not repenting of sin. All of us can be religious like Cain, all of us can sin like Cain, and then all of us can be unrepentant like him. But the good news, the good news of the gospel, is that if you respond in repentance and faith, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. That we respond in repentance and faith. That God forgives you, that God loves you, that you are cleaned by Jesus' blood, the better blood. Let me explain to you what this sort of looks like hypothetically. You see, I think it's important for us to understand is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then when you sin, for example, when I sin, Jesus hypothetically doesn't go to God the Father and say, hey God, he's Joel Deacon, he sinned again this week, can you please show grace to him, can you, can you please forgive him? And then God goes, yeah, okay, I'll forgive him one more time, no worries. But instead, when you have faith in Jesus and his blood at the cross, it means Jesus goes to his Father and says, you're a God of justice. You're a God that demands justice. So I demand justice here because my blood has paid for his sins. So welcome him. Don't condemn him. Embrace him. Love him. You see, we come before God and repent towards him, not as a way to earn our salvation, but because it's been given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 4, we learn about faith. We learn about the nature of faith, the enemy of faith, and the reason for faith. But there's a quick danger that I just want to allude to us before I close. And the danger is this, is when you hear a sermon about faith, as you go home tonight, you may be thinking, all right, how do I apply this? Maybe the main application goes through your head is, I need to have more faith. I need to have more faith in God. And that's a good application. I don't want to discourage you from doing that and trusting in God more. But what I also want to point out to you is that it's not the amount of faith that saves you, but it's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the amount, but it's the object. You see, in many ways, a Christian faith is like going on a plane trip. You go on a plane trip, so there's two people. One person has barely any faith in the pilots and thinks that she's going to die and crash. While the other person has a thousand times more faith. They're like, 100%, we're going to land when we get off this plane. Everything's going to be okay. As that plane touches down safely, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter the amount of faith that either of them had. What matters is the object of their faith in the pilots. The reality is the same for you and I as believers. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it's the object of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. So, as we leave here tonight, can I encourage us to think about the object of our faith? To have faith like Abel and to not be like Cain, but to be thankful for Jesus, the ultimate Abel. I'm going to pray to close. Father God, we just want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for his blood shed at the cross. So there is forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Father, how he defeated and conquered sin and that is shown through his resurrection. That one day, Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, there will be salvation we will be in the new heavens and earth and not experience sin, but instead we'll worship you for eternity. Help us, Father, to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand and join us.